Fair Food Forager. Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show. This podcast is brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app. It's the world's only sustainable food directory and ethical social media. So you can share things that are actually helping the planet. Things like growing your own food or cooking your own food and your love of the planet. So download the app and we'll see you over there. Today I'm talking to Australian Green Senator Janet Rice. She's one of the founding members of the Victorian Greens. We talk a little bit about grief and climate change and the things that keep her going uh, through tough times and just over 30 years of a, of a career in, in politics and trying to make a better planet. So here is Senator Janet Rice. I'm here with Senator Janet Rice, who is a Greens member in Victoria. That's right. So one of our two Green senators in Victoria. Been in the in the Senate for six years. Lovely to meet you, Paul. Yes. Uh, again, meeting on a podcast. What what a great way to have a chat. So we can find lots of things about each other. <laughs> You've been in, in politics for quite a while and you started your career with local government in politics. Well, I've been, yeah, I mean, I've actually been involved with the Greens since the very beginning. I was one of the founders of the Greens in Victoria in 1992, which is, you know, so 20, getting up for 28 years at the end of this year. Um, but really, you know, if you think about the, the broader spectrum or broader definition of politics, I've been involved in, you know, trying to get political change and trying to get change, oh, I don't know, from well well before I was, I was grown up. <laughs> but, yeah, started my life, um, studied science, um, learned about climate change, decided I needed to be an activist and then worked in the environment movement as a forest campaigner for the best part of a decade throughout the 80s. Um, got fed up, absolutely um, fed up with the, both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party who weren't taking you know, environment, sustainability, climate seriously at all um, and decided, yep, we needed the Greens in Victoria. And that, so, yeah, so as I said, the founders of the Greens in 1992, and then has, you know, in since then have ba- played basically every role in the party you can, including, as you said, I was elected to council in my local area, which is Footscray here in the inner western suburbs of Melbourne um, in 2003, and so I was on council for six years. Took my seat in the Senate in July um, 2004. Yeah, and, and your... Uh, heading down this road, did I, I think I read somewhere that uh, you were involved in the Franklin River. Yes, the, during my university years when I was studying science, there were two things that came together which really I think sort of directed me on on my sort of campaigning, activist and then political career. 
One was learning about climate change and learning, you know, this is back in studying second year science in 1980 and learning about the greenhouse effect and thinking this is really serious and the world needs to be taking action about it. So this realisation we had a huge problem. But then at the same time I was involved with the campaign to um, save the Franklin. And so um, I was a, a blockader, went down the Franklin blockade in the summer of 82, 83 um, and, of course, we won. And there was this realisation that, hey, if you have, you know, people working together sort of strategically and coherently and collaboratively and cleverly um, with a lot of people all around the country, you can actually win environmental campaigns or, and other, you know, any campaign for, for change. And so the two of those things came together for me and really made me think that I was cut out to be a campaigner and an activist for working with people to achieve um, the change that we need um, rather than being a research scientist. So that was ab absolutely being involved in the Franklin campaign was pr pretty pivotal in my life. It seems that particular campaign really did kickstart a lot of particularly Greens members in uh, running into politics. And, and I think you, you raise a really good point there that while that campaign, you obviously won that particular campaign, which was it's fantastic for the environment and Tasmania and, and that river. But the fact that you, as you said, you could actually campaign for something and win, it seems to have really kick-started that movement for people wanting to run for politics for, you know, for the right reasons to protect the environment. And Yeah. I mean... The there are a few things. One, the Franklin was very much sort of, it was, I mean, the environment movement has been, you know, there have been environmental campaigns in Australia, you know, since the middle of last century, so, you know, the 50s, the 60s, um, across the country. But the Franklin was really, it was the birth of modern campaigning in sort of bringing people together and really strategically working to get the community on side and being very aware of the need to be building community support. But the other thing it did was, you know, it was a massive campaign over so many years and it was achieved with so much political opposition and we had both, you know, Labor and Liberal governments at sta both state and federal um, levels which were, you know, determined to flood the river um, for a long time, and the thing that turned it around was, you know, was the election of the Hawke government in 1983. Um, but there was that awareness through those of us who were working on the campaign is that it was so hard to rely. You couldn't rely on the Labor Party as well as not being able to, you know, rely on the Liberal and National parties, that they did not have sustainability at their core. I mean, it was great that we got Hawke um, elected you know, and in that government in 83 with their commitment to, to save the Franklin. But it was, you know, it was, and there are um, good steps forward in terms of our environmental laws and sustainability and some great decisions that the Hawke Labor government made in the time they were in office. But it wasn't long before there were some pretty outrageous decisions being made as well. In fact, if I think back to you know my my decision to to get involved in in the formation of the Greens, it was because I was completely sold out by the um, environment minister in the in the Hawke government, Graham Richardson, at the end of the the eighties, and lied to and you know, just basically 
sold out, um, at which stage I thought, right, you know, you just can't trust the Labor Party. They will do um, environmental action for as long as it's politically um, useful to them, but it's just not there. It's core to their um, philosophy as to why they are why they exist as a political party. That's not to say, you know, there are good people inside the Labor Party who are pushing for good things, but it's not um, it's not core to their their existence. Of course, I mean the other the other really important factor of the Franklin in the formation of the Greens was the fact that it was where Bob Brown, you know, first came to prominence and was actively involved and of getting that taste of what you could achieve. And and he similarly, you know, recognised that as well as having those community campaigners and sort of community pressure, we actually needed to have people in our parliaments to reflect, you know, to be the, the political voice um, of, the, of that campaigning and be their representation in the parliament. And so it was, it was the, the campaign that propelled him into politics in, in Tasmania um, before he was then elected to the Senate himself. Yeah, and how did that look without, like if you were a founding member of the Greens in Victoria... You you only did you only have the two parties the Labor and then the the Liberal National Party and then the Greens just started as on the side trying to get members elected is that how it how did that picture look Yeah, there was also the there was also the Democrats and so okay. you know the Democrats at the time were at the you know they existed at the time the Greens were formed and well they were you know again within the Democrats there were some really good progressive campaigners for, you know, environment, for sustainability, for social justice. But they were a deeply divided party. They sort of had the, those who saw them as being a progressive, you know, um, force for social change and those who saw them as being halfway between the Labor and the Liberals and, you know, just keeping the bastards honest. Mm-hmm. And it was this tussle within the Democrats as to sort of which force <laughs> won out at any one time. So, in fact, even before I um, was one of the founding members of the Greens, I joined the Democrats for a year and I thought, they are not going to be the sort of unified force for you know, environmental and social change while they have got that, you know, internal tussling going on. And that, of course, was what ended up, you know, resulting in their demise when they supported the implementation of the, the GST and siding with the Howard government and they just sort of lost all credibility in terms of being um, a progressive force in politics. Sadly, you know, keeping the bastards honest and seeing them halfway between Labor and Liberal, there's not much room between the Labor and the Liberal parties, you know. It's not a, not a place to be working for, for progressive change from. Yeah. And, and so once, so you, you founded the party but, and then you went and worked in local government from, from that period? Well, yeah, so from 92 then very much sort of getting the party up and running building it and then we knew that the best that uh, it's going to be easier to break through into local government before state and federal governments Mm -hmm. and so you know there were a couple of in fact David Ristram was elected to the uh, Melbourne City Council as the first Greens councillor in Victoria I think actually there may have been Greens councillors in New South Wales before then all the state parties all formed differently and uh, with, with separate ways of operating and so, but us here, but us here in Victoria, there were a couple of people that were, were first elected. And similarly, I thought 
you know, I'd been working as a community activist and a campaigner by this stage. I had young kids um, and I was, you know, president of their school council and fighting to save our local swimming pool and things like that and mm. and seeing the potential of what could happen at local government that, yes, you know, you don't have the profile or the reach that you have at a state and a federal parliament, but there are so many important um, things in terms of sustainability, um, you know, planning, transport, climate, energy that local governments can do. And and it's um, and certainly it's a the fact that it's more easy it's easier to get elected at local government is a good way to be good reason to be putting your energies in the first instance into getting elected at local government and it means that for us as greens it sort of builds our credibility as well because when they see greens in government basically in government because when you council you are part of the government at that you know at that local level doing good things listening to community working for a you know fair and sustainable future it really means that sort of people get to know what the greens are about and 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 who is working as you know the, the quality of the people that are working as greens yeah, and of course you have contact with the people who are who are voting for you and the people that you're absolutely elect. yeah. And in fact, what one of the things I miss as a senator compared with being a you know, a councillor that you know you you don't have the same opportunities to have the deep connections with people in your local patch. And I've got to cover all of Victoria, so I yeah I don't don't have those same really deep and personal connections that I did with my local community when I was on council. Mm. Do my best. Do my best to try and keep them up, but it's just a bit hard with a with a bigger patch than than a local government area. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of friends in that, in that the all of Victoria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you studied science and meteorology at university, so you obviously prior to the Franklin experience, you already had an interest in the environment and science to have gone down that path. Where did that come from? Oh, look, I think, you know, growing up, sort of going on camping holidays, camping in national parks with my family every every summer, having an amazing trip with my family in, when I was a teenager to Lake Eyre when it had water in it um, in the mid-70s. So, you know, living, living by the beach in Altona um, and, you know, just being connected with nature and, and a sense of it being important to be protected. But I wasn't an environmental activist at that stage. You know, during my teenage years and during my school years, I just knew that I like I liked being outside, liked gardening. You know, my mum was a great gardener, um, and I'm essentially a science degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I was good at maths and science. And so, you know, let's go down that that path. And I and I knew that I, I liked you know trying to understand the world and understand what was going on. Mm. Um, so those two things sort of came together. I think had yes. But you know, I think my my career shows that you know you can you can move from one thing to another, and so they all build on each other. But sort of everyone's career path it can end up sort of going off in wildly different directions. Mm-hmm. But that that connection with and understanding that we are you know part of nature um, has something that you know has been a really strong thread through my whole life. Mm. Yeah, and that, I I studied a science degree, and I, I think meteorology was probably one of my favorite subjects as well and I think for me 
coming from surfing, it was just a natural thing to be interested in. Yeah, well, what I loved about meteorology is that, you know, I could apply my my science and my maths to what was going on outside the window. <laughs> it was real. It was grounded and important. And, you know, I still, I still love, yes, following the weather, understanding what's going on, you know, both obviously weather and then understanding climate as well. Mm. Um, and it's, for me, I think one of the things that made it easy for me or easier for me to decide to leave behind the science and to be, move into, you know, being a, a campaigner and a politician but still with a science background is that I managed to keep a connection with the science through being, you know, married to a climate scientist. And so I was, you know, I always had my research climate scientists sort of at my, at my fingertips to keep me up to date with where the latest climate science is at. Wow. I didn't. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So my wife Penny Wetton, who was a um, IPCC lead scientist, and she headed up the climate change impact group and the climate projections group at CSIRO for for many years. Worked for, for CSIRO for twenty five years until she sadly passed away last September. Um, yeah. So that was. Um, I've been very much, you know, in all of my grief for losing Penny over the last year, there's been, you know, multifaceted, but, you know, losing my ONTAP climate scientist has been part of that as well and that losing that sort of direct connection with, with climate science um, is something that I have, yeah, it was, it was part, of, part of who Penny was. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I knew that you were married to Penny, but I, I didn't realise that, that that's what she did. There you go. Uh, but I did want to ask, so obviously holding a position like like you have and you're being pulled from pillar to post all the time to get things done and fix this and go to meetings and how do you how do you keep that going when you're running through grief like like you've been through in the last twelve months? Yeah, well it's it's been a hard year. There's no doubt about it. It's been a hard year. And for me, um, being supported by my friends and family, um, acknowledging that grief and acknowledging that it was gonna take me a while to um to you know, I wasn't going to be operating at the same level as the same intensity as what I was. Um so I you know, I took some time off. So you know, Penny died in September last year. I didn't I took, I think it was in total, about six weeks off and then for the rest of and up to the end of last year I was, you know, not, wasn't trying to do nearly as much as what I, I had been doing. Um, had a full month away at our holiday house in Tasmania over summer and and that, you know, as well as having been nurtured and supported by friends and family and helped in my journey, you know, to get to get through stuff. Being out in nature is just it it connects me, it nurtures me, it revitalizes me. Um and so, you know, if, if I'm feeling down, <laughs> that's what I know I need to do. And whether it's sort of, you know, being out in 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 the beautiful expanses where our holiday house is in Tasmania or walking down the street as I have been while we've been in lockdown in Melbourne and I'm only allowed to go out for an hour of exercise every day, you know, going out to the sort of local park that's got a beautiful wetland in it and talking to the magpies and yesterday <laughs> talking to a pair of swans with four little cygnets, you know, that sort of stuff. Or even then I had two weeks of, of complete lockdown and self-isolation because my son actually caught COVID and I was a close contact at his, so I had to be sort of locked down without going out for exercise. And then it was going out and talking to my broad beans and my chooks. 
yeah. <laughs> certainly that the natural world that that is nurturing me and supporting me and and feeling that yeah it's it's helping to support me in this journey it's something that i always wonder about is that people that make decisions that hurt the environment it makes me wonder what do they do in these situations because I know that's that's also a common thing is that when we're going through hard times or or we have some sort of mental strain is that the natural world is always an escape for us and it always gives us even just moments that we that takes our mind away from the troubles that we have so I just wonder how how do people make decisions to destroy forests or blow up the seafloor. Obviously, mm. Mm. they've spent some time in their life in the natural world feeling good about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think you probably need to put it to those people <laughs> rather than to me. That's right. But, the, you know, they must, they must feel disconnected basically and must feel that, you know, their action and not really understand, you know, the the damage that's being done by their decisions um, and or have got an unrealistic sense that, oh, well, you know, the earth will just heal itself, be able to fix itself up. Mm. Either don't think about it or have got, you know, this sense that everything will be okay or it's only a small bit of forest so it doesn't really matter. There's the rest that's going to stay and that's enough. Mm. Yeah. But, yes, I'm, I'm so far away from that mindset that I'm not the best person to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I know. I, I totally understand. <laughs> and, and because of it, the, that's the thing that, you know, as you mentioned there, you, you go out in your garden and you can, you can talk to your, your chooks and your broad beans or you can go and talk to some swans in the park or, you know, some fo- a forest in Tasmania. It's, there's just so many things, even just you know, within 100 metres of our home, that can give us that kind of peace. And I just wish... Exactly, yeah. It, it's just all there for Yeah, us. And, I, I, and I think it's so important for, you know, I, I just have I've been, in fact, talking quite a bit to, you know, young people wanting to be involved in politics over the last couple of days and just saying, you know, staying grounded and connected with nature is just so important. I've been reading some wonderful works um, by uh, uh, American author, Native American, Robin Wall Kimmerer. I don't know if you know of Robin's work. She's a a botanist as well as being an Indigenous woman and her book Braiding Sweetgrass is talking about sort of the connection with with nature and being part of nature and sort of and melding scientific and indigenous knowledge. But you know, when she was asked as you know, what's the most important thing that people could do to sort of, you know, get involved, get connected, and she says to grow go and grow a garden. Mm-hmm. Because by having that sort of connection with the earth and to be part of, you know, nurturing and, and gardening is it 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 make it so much is a, a a base for your connection with with the world and and all of your relationships with the world. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think it's um, you know I, I, I like again I can't believe talking about this stuff still, but you uh, you mentioned at the beginning there that you studied science and then you started hearing about the greenhouse effect and and things that were happening with climate and that was 35 or so years ago and we're still 
seem to be having the same discussions. And no, exactly. 40 years ago, actually, it was 1980, yeah. And, look, there's, you know, much more awareness, but there is still you know, far too many people who, you know, are still thinking in a very, very disconnected, short-sighted um, way and without realising the consequences um, and it's, you know, just thinking about, well, what's what's in their material benefit, you know, right now. Um, I don't think that's the majority of the population. That's the, you know, the irony. But the majority of the population, actually, if you get them to think about it, will say, no, you know, we want to have a future. We want to have a safe future for our children. But don't realise that we need to be taking the action that we need to be taking to do that and are being lulled into a sense of everything's okay, you know, with the, our current government saying, yeah, 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 we're taking enough action, don't worry about it. And if you're not politically engaged and you don't actually realise the importance of, of taking action, you can, it's easy to just listen to that and to say, oh, yeah, well, they must be looking at, you know, looking after it. And, you know, most Australians, they do trust governments, you know, they trust the government to be doing the right thing. And if, you know, if there are things that the Labor and the Liberal Party agree on, like, you know, yes, we need to keep on digging up coal and gas, you know, that's important for Australia's economy, well, then most Australians will say, oh, well, if that's what they're saying, you know, it should be done, well, that must be right. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's up to those of us that, that know it's not right to be, you know, working with them to say, hey, no, you know, you're not going to, we're not going to be having a, uh, a, a positive future unless we actually, you know, stand up and, and take action and get politicised because, mm. you know, most people in Australia live pretty comfortable lives and they don't see that there's a need to actually be taking action and, and campaigning for change, whereas, you know, um, those of us that sort of see all of the issues that are faced in the world say we've got to be working for change, you know, we have to be changing the way that we do things. Yeah, it's interesting that I know quite often when local government, when they run uh, questionnaires about what's, what are the most important issues to the people, uh, even here in, in Wollongong, you know, it's quite an industrial, it had industrial beginnings, but I'm pretty sure every survey that our local government runs, the environment comes up either first or second in just about every survey that they run. And that, that must happen all over the country, but yet politicians keep making decisions based on a few vested interests. And exactly. And and it's because that's where the power still lies within both major parties. You know, we've got a, a although our, you know, democracy actually, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of our democracy are fair and, you know, we have fair and free elections, but the influences on the major parties from their big donors from the fossil fuel industry are massive, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, if you even look at, you know, Labor who would say, well, the reason that they are saying we need to keep on mining coal is we need to be looking after workers. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you know, there are so many other ways that we could be looking after workers that and, you know, helping planning the transition. That's the way we need to be looking after workers. We're not the reason the fact that we're not doing that isn't because of, you know, um isn't isn't because there is no other option for those workers. The reason we're not doing that is because there are some very big, powerful interests who are making a massive amount of money out of continuing that you know, fossil fuel um, um, mining and export. And and I guess that's at, at all levels of, of government, but particularly from the federal government. But you have your own issues yeah. like this in Victoria as well. 
Are there any big uh, issues like this that you're working on in Victoria at the moment? Well, I mean, there's, uh, in terms of fossil fuels, I mean, the, the big ones for, you know, the Greens here in Victoria are basically saying that, look, we need to be transforming, you know, our economy. We need a Green New Deal. We need to be getting out of coal. And we've got the brown coal that still, you know, fires, you know, provides about over two-thirds of our electricity in Victoria. You know, we need to be having a rapid getting out of those, um, you know, shutting down those coal-fired power stations having a just transition for those workers, so reshaping the economy in the, in the Latrobe Valley and, and, and developing, you know, with government support, other potential work for those, for those workers and building renewables. You know, we've got, like, across the country, you know, Victoria, just as much across the country, you know, the potential for, for wind and solar is massive. And then, you know, the potential of, of you know, changing our agricultural base as well to be having, you know, more sustainable agriculture, you know, building our soils rather than destroying them, um, actually, you know, having much more sort of value-adding in our um, food manufacturing as well. There's so much potential. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, the upsides of the, of the COVID pandemic is that there is a realisation now that things have to change and that what we've been told, you know, some of the things that we've been told over the last 50 years are impossible um, suddenly are happening. Suddenly, yes, where there are lives at risk, government are intervening in the economy and sort of doing things and, you know, supporting, giving people adequate income to live on if you're, if you're unemployed. These are exactly the sort of things that, you know, that are possible um, and we can be running a, you know, a very healthy economy that is sustainably, that is sustainable and is, and is socially just as well. Um, but it's not. We're not going to do it just by sort of running things along the same old lines. It's sort of neoliberal economics has been dictating, which is essentially small government operating the interests of the big vested interests, and just leaving ordinary people out to dry. Mm. And the earlier you they start working on those uh, the, those alternative economies, then the easier the transition for the workers is. But if they keep waiting, exactly. Waiting, <laughs> Then, yeah. then it becomes like a, a big rush at the end and, and people miss out. Exactly. And people, uh, yeah, it, it all happens very suddenly, which is, you know, what happened What happened when the, the Hazelwood um, coal-fired power station closed down. It, ha- it happened, you know, just, you know, it was open one day and closed the next virtually, which mm. meant workers, you haven't got the transition plans, you haven't got the retraining, you haven't got the opportunities for people to be moving into other jobs and supporting other industries. Um, that stuff all takes time. And so, you know, that's what us as Greens are saying, let's start doing that now, you know, and let's be investing in the industries of the future and let's be investing in education, investing in research and technology, investing in renewable energy, investing in revegetation and and restoring um, environments. You know, there are so, there's so much work that could be done that, in fact, is economically sensible as well. Um, but often that, you know, the economics of it are, are over a longer term than just who's going to be making a profit over the, the next couple of years. 
I mean, a really good example of, you know, where we should be investing at the moment is, is building cycling infrastructure. And we know that it's absolutely, it would be absolutely perfect. Um, you know, we couldn't, now Greens policies to say that we should be spending a billion dollars on bike infrastructure over the next four years at a federal level and have that matched also by, you know, extra funds from the state and territory and, and local governments. Um, we know that every dollar invested in cycling infrastructure because it then encourages more people to ride has um, it's got economic benefits of about, I think it's $5 economic benefits in terms of the health and environment benefits. So it's, it's just the way that we should be going. It's the sort of work that doesn't require a lot of, you know, complex equipment imported from overseas, you know, like the big tunnel boring machines for massive freeways, for example. <laughs> it's local jobs. It can be done, you know, you can ramp it up at a level that um, as you've got people to be building those, uh, you know, cycle infrastructure and it would leave us with a legacy of, of providing that infrastructure that will enable, you know, people to feel safe and really give people the, the freedom to be riding safely. Um, and yet at a federal level, you know, I keep on plugging away, it's pushing the need for this as part of our, um, you know, post-COVID recovery and there's just zero interest at a federal level, absolutely zero. So I'll keep asking the questions and keep pushing for it. And, again, it's something that, you know, people agree it's a good idea. Local governments around the country agree it's a good idea. The reason they're investing in in bike paths is they just haven't got the resources to do it. If you had a, a program of investing in, in, in bike paths um, and other bike infrastructure um, implemented by local government, it could be, yeah, a, a massive win for everybody right across the country. Some European countries have those the the bike lanes that just bypass intersections, and so riding a, a bicycle to to work, especially if you live in a city, could actually be faster on a bicycle than it is in a car. And then you have the the mental yeah. health benefits, the the health benefits, the benefits to the environment. You get to work and you actually feel happy instead of stressed out. It's just endless benefits. That's right, exactly. <laughs> endless benefits, yes. And, yes, and, and you know, the, talk, the sort of infrastructure I'm talking about is really good quality bike paths that are separated from the traffic. You know, we can't just think that it's okay to just as going to be painting a line on the side of the road and think that that's going to work because we know that people don't feel safe. And, in fact, it's not safe if you've got cars whizzing past at 80 kilometres an hour um, for people to be... Um, that's that's really second class bike infrastructure, yeah. but we know that if you do build good quality off road bike infrastructure that's direct, uh, gets people to where they need to go, then people use it. And particularly, um, women are put off from cycling because they don't feel safe, and quite understandably, it's got you know, as a general rule, have got a higher you know awareness of the risk of 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 of. Um, the potential you know, lack of safety in cycling. And so you build that type of cycling infrastructure and women are much more likely to use it. They're also much more likely to allow their kids to ride. Mm. And so building that um, you know, generation of new cyclists. And, of course, you know, under the pandemic, we're at the moment and so people not being able to travel. Um, there are so many more people out in their bikes, out in their parks, um, and with less traffic on the road, people feeling, you know, a bit more emboldened to ride on the roads. If we need to make sure that once, you know, life, we get back to, you know, our new normal, that people still being able to ride and sort of continue on this sort of newfound um, activity is, is available, something that's available for them. 
And Australia is a, there's really no excuse for us to be a cycling nation. Uh, yeah, apart from the last couple of weeks, it's sunny three quarters of the year. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Hardly I ever. I remember visiting Copenhagen. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Copenhagen it's... in the pouring rain and sort of people riding with their, with their umbrellas. And, in fact, they ride through the snow as well. <laughs> Yeah, there's no excuse. And particularly, I mean, there are people who live, you know, a um, greater distance away from, um, you, know, you know, say their journey to work is is longer than a cycling trip. But, again, you can combine um, bikes with public transport as well and to make that work really easily. And then the potential of um, electric bikes of being able to sort of extend people's sort of comfortable range to be able to ride and um, and also to cope with, you know, hillier territory that people just feel if they haven't got the fitness and then certainly, you know, in some particularly hilly parts of the country it is a bit daunting on a bicycle to be getting up and down those hills. But, yeah, electric bikes really make that possible as well. Mm. They're exactly the sorts of, you know, initiatives or and, and the sorts of, um, ways of getting around that would be so easy to encourage with just, you know, a bit of support and, and encouragement from government. You know, it's something that I guess as an outsider to politics that I've always been frustrated about is that every time a government, I know here in New South Wales, they just build extra lanes on roads all the time and spend millions of dollars in adding lanes, but then in five years' time that lane is yes. traffic as well. And they never think to themselves, oh, maybe we invest in public transport or, or cycling so we don't need to add four lanes to a three-lane road. We can just get those cars exactly. off the road. Exactly. We are still planning for, for car dominance and we know that, you know, you build an extra lane and it will be filled up. You can't build your way out of out of traffic congestion. Um, you know, even if you go down the path of the, you know, the Los Angeles style of the 10-lane freeways, um, they get clogged up as well and then you've got all of the pollution and you've got a massive amount of space that cars take up in your, in, in your city because, you know, all of that, you know, road space is space that's not, available for open space it's not available for gardens it's not available for people to be sort of walking and cycling and growing stuff it's just for for cars and cars are just so inefficient in terms of um, the space that they take up to be shifting people around they have you know this metal metal box that's got 1.1 people um, in it on average across the country at any one time um and and with all the negative um, impacts that, that you know, every kilometre that's travelled have, and you know, even where you've you know, obviously electric cars, you know, powered by renewable energy, um, you can get rid of the the pollution impacts of them and the the climate impacts of them, but you've still got just the you know the massive shaping of our our, our cities and creating cities that just are not human friendly because of the massive barriers of of those motorways, you know, you know, slicing up the cities and taking up space. We've got a, a freeway that's being developed just close to me here in Footscraves of the Westgate Tunnel, which is going to do absolutely nothing to deal with the, you know, congestion of people coming in, commuting in from the western suburbs. But it's, you know, it's dominating the, a section of the Maribyrnong River Valley where, near where I live, and it's just tragic. It really is. It's just such appalling planning and, and undervaluing and, and trashing um, 
part of the river that that should be being celebrated and, and redeveloped as a as a natural space. It, it just seems like a, a constant default solution to everything, but without any actual thought. Yep. And again, you know, you've got the people who's benefiting most from these road developments. It's um, the the private tollway companies. It's transurban. It's the transurban um, shareholders who are who are the, the only winners out of this. And the power that you know they and the rest of the road lobby have on governments is it's corrupt, basically. It really is. Um, they have the influence and we don't have transparent decision-making. We don't have the community being involved in, in making these decisions. It's essentially a cosy deal that's done between the government and these private companies um, because, because they're mates and they're looking after each other and scratching each other's backs. That's the sort of stuff that they're passionate about and working on, <laughs> continuing to work on as an advocate and a campaigner, as you know, both inside and outside the parliament to the green. I'm just looking at the time that you've got to yeah. take off. Uh, I, I just thought we could finish on something uh, about yeah. you. And you already mentioned that you get out of the environment as much as possible. But uh, going forward, what are, you, what are your plans to stay? motivated and and keep going with this and and perhaps what can other people do what would you advise other people to do who are as passionate as you about the environment oh look it's it's working in whatever way you can and particularly working with other people and you know one of my lessons one of my reflections on you know decades of campaigning is knowing that we're in it for the long haul. It would be lovely to think that we're going to solve all of these problems by tomorrow, but we're not, which means that you've got to do it in a way that's to maintain your resilience and that's sustainable. And you can't, and you've got to be doing it with other people because the sure way of being burnt out is to feel that you've got all the problems of the world on your shoulder and your shoulders and that it's up to you to fix them. And for a lot of people, you know, suffering, you know, climate grief and realizing just the damage that's being done to our world can feel that you know really really strongly and the the thing to overcome that is to have a sense of when you work with other people you can achieve change and yet the change might not be as quick as what we want it might not be as far reaching as what we want but we just got to keep going and I mean that's one of my reflections in my you know the hard year that I've had over the last year of having lost penny is that yeah really horrible things happen in life and life you know my life today is not as good as what it was um you know when penny was with me um but you keep going because there is still it's still worth being alive it's still worth working with other people there's still other people there are people to love there's a planet to be part of um and to enjoy being alive and to be you know working for change and so working with other people staying connected with nature and and knowing that you know Together we can keep on keep on working for a better world. Well, that's some pretty solid advice there. Life, <laughs> and get enough sleep. That's the other. That's my other big bit of advice to people: to get enough sleep. sleep. <laughs> you can do anything after sleep. <laughs> sleep. Enjoy the good things that are that are around us, and uh, and keep on keeping on. That's right. Well, thank you so much for um, for joining the Fair Food Forager and Friends show, and and uh, thanks, Paul, putting across some of your expertise from a, a long career in in fighting for the environment. 
Thank you. And yeah, keep keep up the good work, everyone. And yeah, and look forward to seeing you somewhere on the campaigning path. <laughs> Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, Paul. He's in that position. Would you do the same? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show with Australian Greens Senator Janet Rice and it motivates you to get out there and do whatever it is that you'd like to do to make this world a better place. This song is Running Out of Time from Trouble's Door by Ash Grunwald. So thanks a lot to Ash. Please rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And if there's any uh, tips or pointers or someone that you'd like me to interview, please feel free to get in touch. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. When we had no voice.